Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Allie McCluskey. Today, I'm joined by fellow Wharton alum, Clay Gardner, co-founder and co-CEO of Titan. Titan is an active investment management platform, democratizing elite investment products and experiences for everyone. Since its founding in 2018, Titan has graduated from Y Combinator and grown from zero to over 500 million in assets under management and over 25,000 clients with essentially zero marketing budget, making it one of the fastest growing advisors on record. They also just raised their $12.5 million Series A, led by General Catalyst, with participation from Ashton Kutcher's Sound Ventures, Lee Fixel, Instagram founder Mike Krieger, Eventbrite founder Kevin Hartz, and many others. Prior to Titan, Clay held a number of investing roles at hedge funds and investment firms alike, including Farallon and Cerberus. He graduated summa cum laude from the Jerome Fisher program in management and technology at our very own Wharton School and School of Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania, where he earned dual degrees in economics and computer science. In this episode, we discuss how Clay and his co-founder Joe reunited six years after meeting in Wharton undergrad to democratize active investing, the investor persona Titan was built for, and why active management and public equities hasn't gone out of style, Clay's most memorable week in markets, rejecting a portfolio company's initial acquisition tender offer, his advice to entrepreneurs on product market fit, when to raise capital, and how to measure true customer loyalty, what he's most excited about in the future of investing, the investor he admires most, and so much more. So with that, let's get started. Hi, Clay. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. How are you and where are you? I'm doing extremely well. Thank you. I'm in the office. Can't you see? No, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, working from home in Manhattan, New York right now. I'll fill our listeners in on the joke, given they can't see your pristine virtual background. But boy, do I hope we're all back in offices that spacious sometime soon. Anyway, it's no secret that I have been a longtime fan of what you're building at Titan. Full disclosure to our listeners that I've been a client since 2018 when I read about Titan graduating from Y Combinator. So I'm psyched to share more of your story with our listeners. We have a ton to get through, but we always like to start by getting to know you a bit better. So can you walk us through your background between your various investing roles and academic pursuits at our very own University of Pennsylvania? Totally. I went to Penn undergrad. I came into Wharton in 2008. Uh, I think it was like a week or so before Lehman collapsed. So that was an interesting time to, to jump into business school. I actually transferred into the dual degree program there my sophomore year. So yeah, I was a finance and computer science dual degree, this program called M&T. I actually met my co-founder, Joe, in Management 100 at Wharton undergrad. So a lot of, a lot of Wharton blood in the Titan family. Yeah, post-graduation, 2012, I actually spent some time, a couple of summers at Goldman and their principal investing group. Spent a couple of years in private equity at a firm called Cerberus, and then a few large hedge funds, Farallon Capital out in the Bay Area, um, where I cut my teeth in public equities. And then I helped join an early stage a startup fund backed by Blackstone here in New York City, just prior to Titan. So that long winding road uh, was very different than my co-founder, Joe's. Joe, despite graduating top of his class at Wharton, Goldman Banking, McKinsey, I mean, like you name it, struggled to invest the money he was making and saving. I mean, while I was in the proverbial back of the restaurant, 
with a secret menu, investing with hedge funds, private equity, venture capital. So our paths kind of diverged post-graduating from Wharton, but we reconnected when we were both back in New York City about six years later, and we're inspired to democratize this kind of back of the restaurant, front of the restaurant dynamic that we saw in investment management, which I can talk a little bit about. And that was the genesis of Titan. That's awesome. I'm envisioning all of our student listeners, gears turning in their minds about who they might want to team up with in the future, myself included. But anyway, I think that gives us a great foundation in terms of how Titan came to be and the problem you set out to solve. But can you talk about who you created Titan for? The core client we're serving today is a mid-career professional. It's someone who's already familiar, in many ways, a digital native. So is already communicating via mobile devices, probably managing money and investing on their phone already, and is looking for a money management relationship that kind of operates the same way that they operate the rest of their lives, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, DoorDash, Postmates. It's transparent, it's seamless, it's cost-effective. But if you think about expert money management, still basically stuck in the Stone Age. Mutual funds are an incredibly fragmented industry. You're buying a ticker and a brokerage and trying to piece together what the manager is doing. And I can go on and on about how that industry works, but that's the core problem we're solving is trying to put an expert money, an expert money manager in everyone's pocket, regardless of whether they're accredited or not, uh, regardless of, of their upbringing and their experience level. 30 to 35-year-old is kind of the, the mode of the client we serve. Um, not a zero to one investor either. So not someone who's like dipping their toes with like a few dollars in like a micro savings app. These are people with pretty substantial income and earnings. But like I said, someone of my co-founder, Joe, they're paralyzed in, in investing those savings for a handful of reasons. They don't have the knowledge. They're afraid to trade away their life savings, buying you know, call options in Tesla, but they still don't quite meet that accreditation level to go invest with Goldman or Morgan Stanley's private wealth manager. So they find Titan and then we very quickly start to penetrate a lot of networks. So we do have like classic quote unquote baby boomers and like older folks opening retirement accounts with us. And we do have college age students like Wartonites um, also opening accounts. So it's a pretty broad spectrum. So you clearly had a specific user persona in mind of someone a bit more comfortable with the space, but I've always liked that Titan still emphasizes wanting to make customers not only richer, but also smarter. So as a user, I've had a chance to watch a bunch of the video updates and the signature top three stories of the day blurbs, but walk us through the strategy of building out content that would resonate with that user base. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's been it's been a ton of fun because if you think about what we're doing with content, it wasn't even necessarily like a growth tactic, like how do we get in front of people cost-effectively? Let's produce content. It was very much this organic realization that the conversations that we would have behind the scenes, if you think about like that smart friend that you know that works in finance, who's like savvy with money, when he or she is sitting around like the dinner table with their family, their family's asking them, like, what stocks are you investing in? Right? What's your perspective on the market, on the election? And I feel like everyone tends to have someone or several folks in their lives that are kind of that resident expert. And just opening that conversation is, was incredibly fun and enriching. Whether or not you take their advice is a separate point, but it just felt very organic to us that beyond the functional utility of like, make me money, hopefully more than I can get on my own, expert money managers serve a very valuable purpose of engaging clients and like building trust. And by the way, that actually drives better financial outcomes too. It's like, if you understand what you're investing in, you're not going to sell first, ask questions later. You're more likely to add on dips in, in the market. And, uh, and generally speaking, that, that can correlate to, to much better financial health. So 
Um, it was really just like taking all the conversations that are happening in the back of the restaurant, like offline organically on like group text threads with my friends and on like long email chains and listservs and like just open sourcing that effectively and like making that available. And we saw clients gobble it up. And like, that's why we see over 80% of our clients checking the app every week and our down now, so to speak, the percentage of monthly active clients that engage daily is like rivaling a Facebook or Instagram. It's because we've basically taken that kind of behavior that people want to know what's going on with their money every day. And we own that client relationship. So instead of having to search for that content and those conversation starters on Yahoo Finance and Bloomberg and other channels, we're the one-stop shop. And so really just trying to like basically democratize the relationship of money management as much as the product, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you had some solid initial hypotheses as to what your target user was looking for. But I'm curious if there have been any customer feedback surprises along the way or anything you've learned from users that has altered your roadmap or maybe views on what to build next? Yeah, I think that a few realizations. So one is that many folks want investing to be this, this we call it a two-way street, but it's basically a dialogue. I think the nature of like expert and like novice investor, some people think it's like, you're, you're going to give me advice and I'm just going to listen and it's going to absorb it. And it's like a very much a one-way street. And I think you've seen this with other platforms as well, but like just the growth in social participation and investing, like just wanting to be part of a conversation. We've seen a lot of clients demand like social features on our platform and like trying to build a more of a community around it. So yes, I, you know, I came to Titan to be my money manager and to help open a retirement account and grow my savings. But at the same time, my friend just told me about like, you know, Litecoin or my friend just, it just said I should buy Tesla. What do you think? And not only does that surface potentially interesting investment products and strategies for us to build for our clients, the vast majority of recommendations we do not build, but allow them open our eyes up to like the zeitgeist is moving in a particular way that could change investing for the next five, 10, 20 years, but it also builds trust, right? It's like 99% of the time, we'll probably say, we don't know, we're not familiar with that company or that crypto, or, or we are, we are familiar and here's what we have to say, regardless of whether they act on that information, you're building trust. And that results in clients generally sticking with us for longer, referring more friends, adding more money. So um, I would characterize it as just like starting a dialogue and a conversation as opposed to just being a place where we spin up content to try to grow um, and send it in a unidirectional way. Yeah. I mean, this aligns with your earlier point, right? About Titan's path to building that customer trust by essentially digitizing the smart friend on the group chat. So I can only imagine though, how many questions you get on different asset classes or even other stocks that Titan may or may very well not end up building, but you still want to be that trusted resource. So it's, it's a tough one. Along that vein of what you do or don't ultimately add to your product roadmap, can you talk about launching your second strategy or what we might know as the opportunities fund? Because Titan, of course, initially started with its flagship fund strategy of investing in 20-ish US large caps that were well-liked by the broader hedge fund community, according to 13Fs, which obviously feel free to elaborate on that as well. But then you added the second strategy. So how did you decide to build and offer the opportunities fund and what needed to be in place for its launch? It's a great question. Uh, maybe rewinding to the hypothesis that we built Titan upon. And it was very much that, like I'm very much like students of the scientific method. And instead of thinking of smart company ideas and then trying, hoping they become big, you start with the problem and a hypothesis of how to solve it. And then to the extent 
you start to find that product market fit, you kind of pull the threads and see where this client takes you and where this problem goes. For us, it was, do consumers want active investment management? That was the hypothesis. Our hypothesis was yes. If you build it in a mobile, transparent, cost-effective way, they would eat it up. We know this because I'm doing it for my friends on the side and they love it. And it's taking up more of my time than my actual day job. To test that hypothesis, rather than try to build the best actively managed fund in the world, we started with a pretty simple blueprint, which is let's just create a portfolio that's effectively the best ideas of like some of the best investors we know. Those investors put out regular filings and regular research. So we can pretty quickly assemble a all-star team, if you will, of like their best ideas and less innovating on the actual investment management side, um, even though we, we think this is a fantastic first cut at a product and more really focusing on that second dynamic of like courtside seats, like building content around it. And once we started to see people like rip this product and this experience out of our hands, we started asking more questions like, what did you come to Titan for? Where do you hope this goes? And we saw people really leaning into the active, like more discretionary nature. There's plenty of passive robo-advisors in the world. The world doesn't need any more like low-cost automatic rebalancing index funds with tax loss harvesting. I, I think that's a commodity. It'll, it is free on many platforms and will trend towards zero fees over time. Um, what I think the world does need is more democratization of investing in more alternative and novel active ways. And that's our bread and butter. Like that's the world I come from is active management, not like passive. And so as we started to hear that from clients, we started to pull those threads. We gradually made flagship more discretionary over time, more dynamic, more opportunistic. And then with the launch of opportunities, that was our first like completely discretionary strategy where we have an in-house team doing everything from research, idea generation, building financial models, talking to management teams, and then managing portfolios. And that's the direction we're heading. So really think about Titan is an active investment management platform. We're not a great comp versus like a betterment and wealth fund. We're also not a great comp for the self-directed brokerages um, where you're making your own decisions. I, I truly think the best comparable is a Fidelity or a Franklin Templeton or a T-Bar Price, like a legacy active, actively managed mutual fund house. And yeah, so it's honestly where we're heading, like expect more, we could talk about this more, but investment products that lean active and discretionary in nature and just kind of trying to build out new slices of a person's pie beyond US stocks. So we're thinking about overseas markets, crypto, private placements, and private assets as well. I want to super briefly touch on that last category you mentioned of private placements and private assets, because we've spent most of this conversation distinguishing the value props of active versus passive management in public equities. But what do you say to folks that think public markets are kind of passe? And I obviously say that somewhat facetiously, but it does feel like so much of the focus lately has been on alpha generation in private markets and alternative assets, particularly given how long companies are staying private and the shiny new digital asset classes that seem to be popping up everywhere. So again, what, what do you say to the folks who have lost interest or at least just aren't prioritizing public equities these days? I don't disagree that there's more like quote unquote alpha in private markets than public. For the reasons you mentioned, companies staying private longer, there's being frankly way more public like equities hedge fund managers than there are uh, multi-stage um, private venture investors. The, the question ultimately is like, what are you optimizing for? And what does your core client want? Um, for people that are just optimizing for returns, that may be the case. You have to also understand with Titan, people optimizing for the experience and like the ability to learn and grow as an investor. The beauty of public markets is you have the market to market every day. Like Mr. Market creates stories every day. We take that raw oil, so to speak, we refine it, 
and we send it to clients and then we put it back in the ground and Mr. Market drills it again the next day. It's pretty hard to do with private companies. I mean, speaking as a private company founder, there's not as much like sexy, like glorified stuff to churn out every day. You think about private companies, it's fundraising rounds, big product milestones. Otherwise, it's kind of like nose to the grindstone. So there are natural trade-offs for a business like ours when you go into something that's not marked to market. The beauty, obviously, is like there's less ups and downs to kind of scare you out of the market. And like you mentioned, there could be better alpha. I'm just more broadly very excited about the democratization of kind of everything. I don't think everything should be investable. You know, some people, you know, things like wine and collectibles and sneakers. It's great that you're you're letting people have the choice. I don't consider that investing necessarily because those are not productive assets. They're effectively it's a scarcity game to some extent, a greater fool um, kind of game. But I love the ethos of making things accessible that currently are not that are walled off to a certain population. And yeah, I think many and many of them venture private equity cryptocurrencies, I think you're going to, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity to make a lot of people significant amount of money. Yeah, I think that's all fair. And I will say as a public markets veteran myself, there's so much more instant gratification to your point that comes from liquidity, transparency, and just way more pricing information. So now that I'm getting a little nostalgic actually about my sales and trading days, I'm curious if you have a favorite day or week or just period of time in markets that sticks out in your memory. And hopefully that isn't too anxiety inducing of a question. There's a few that jump out. The ones where I think we, the value proposition of Titan shine most, like I'll I'll give the, the collector's universe example. Collector's universe is a trading card collectibles authentication company. They grade collectibles. They give them a a verified kind of stamp of approval and effectively a a toll road on the growth of that industry. It's a tiny company or was a tiny company. We got involved just a few hundred million dollars in market cap. And the reason it's memorable is because we got involved as that company with our opportunity strategy in August, 2020. And with a thesis being, it's an incredible business. There's growing demand for collectibles and this authentication but it's been a pretty mismanaged business historically. And there was an activist, actually a relatively close friend of several friends of mine who was pushing and agitating for change of this company, telling management to modernize its business, focus on digital recurring revenue streams and showing more transparency with shareholders. And we were confident that that would drive change. If not, you still own a great business that's growing over time with optionality for shareholders. That business got an acquisition offer from a group of private investors, Steve Cohen's venture arm, D1 Capital, and a handful of entrepreneurs. We thought the acquisition offer was a lowball offer. And as a result, we deliberately told our clients and on behalf of our clients voted against uh, the tender offer. Tender offer is basically is an offer by management. Will you tender your shares to us for some amount of cash? And we said no, because we thought the company was worth significantly more. We chatted with other active shareholders of the company as well. And yeah, as a result of that effort, the companies, I think the original offer was 20 or 30% lower than what they actually had to come back with. So I think going back to what I mentioned earlier, the reason that was memorable is because individual investors would never have been able to do this themselves. If you're like a Jill Smith or like a Joe Schmo who owns $10,000 of collective universe stock, you're not even on the first 10 pages of the shareholders list. And that matters. That matters for the votes that you have. You, know, you vote basically depending on the amount of shares you have. And as a result, I think had the activist and active managers like Titan not been involved, the outcome could have been way worse. 
So I'm just excited at what can happen when, you know, when you have a large, uh, a large and growing entity that's like vouching for things on behalf of smaller mom and pop investors, you give them a seat at the table, voting proxies, things that they would never dream about, things that just like are like archaic and boring in nature, but are actually really meaningful over time. And so I'm just excited about the opportunity for us to get involved in more situations like that. So that's definitely the most salient one that comes to mind. Yeah. I mean, that's the value prop of active management, right? And it highlights some of the recent phenomenon of empowering that collective of retail investors to affect public markets that would have seemed basically impossible on an individual scale. But before everyone thinks I'm leading the conversation toward GameStop and Reddit, I want to pivot to some of Titan's other biggest validation points, because you went through Y Combinator in the early days, as we discussed. You've received a number of standout investment advisor awards, including being best-named robo-advisor by U.S. News in 2020. You've now surpassed $500 million in AUM, and the list of accomplishments goes on and on. But is there one milestone that sticks out as the time when you thought, okay, we're really onto something, and I can finally start to see the path to us really getting there? It's funny you mentioned that. I was joking with my co-founders and the team a few days ago um, when we announced 500 million um, that we're really bad at celebrating things because it's like, you know, each progressive milestone, if you think about the percentage growth off a higher, higher base, it becomes like, oh, it's like another day. When in reality, we really need to be better at celebrating things because we've come a long way in the last 12 months. I would say, hard to know. I think 100 million is pretty special. You know, you never know when you reach this kind of like, uh, quote unquote, tipping point of client trust and credibility and press coverage. And you just sort of enter the mainstream narrative on what's happening. I think 100 million was roughly when that happened for us, which was, you know, in the early part of 2020. But I would say, I think the whole several months around when COVID first hit in spring of 2020. And the reason it was is less about something specific to like tighten achieving it as a business and more of this like the value we delivered for clients was people reawoke to the value of active management which is when things are up into the right and green, no one asks any questions. Everyone seems like a genius. Everyone believes it's skill, not luck. But it, it's when the proverbial stuff hits the fan that people ask questions. They reevaluate. In COVID in particular, you had tons of unfortunate layoffs, people with stranded 401ks. You just had a lot of money floating around and a lot of people searching for answers more than ever. And that was a point, I think that was a massive accelerator to our growth because we were there holding clients' hands and explaining what was going on in real time, giving them what we call this courtside seats example. And you know, when the game is on the line in the fourth quarter, that's when people want courtside seats, right? If things are if the team is dominating every game and it's like a they have an undefeated record, you can be outside the stadium looking at the big board and it's like, okay, yeah, business as usual. And so that was like hard to pinpoint one day. I mean it felt like every day in March 2020 was like up or down five or 10 percent. But um you know, we saw minimal client churn, significant client growth, and just a lot of positive feedback around the communication and the transparency. And to be clear, like we took a hit then too. Like it wasn't like we were making boatloads of money for clients. So that was probably the most, I think, the biggest milestone we achieved, which is showing the value of active management to clients. And yeah, I think it just took one big correction for people to realize stocks don't just always go up into the right. I mean, it's another huge validation point for startups, generally speaking, right? That you can, you know, survive market cycles and survive the bad times. So, you know, not only do I think you saw that validation from clients, but you certainly saw it from investors. 
Mm-hmm. Titan recently raised its $12.5 million Series A round with very notable names, including General Catalyst, Ashton Kutcher's VC, Scribble VC, just a powerhouse list. What did you learn about that fundraising process, doing it while you know COVID is still very much part of the equation? It was a relatively quick process. We we were profitable in 2020. We we were a really lean, scrappy team. It's funny, post Y Combinator, we I think we hired one person per year. So you know, growing from three to eight people felt like a lifetime of expansion for us. But you know, we're very slow to hire, very thoughtful, and very lean and frugal. And so we got profitable in 2020, and we didn't need to raise. But you know, when a the perfect partner shows up, more partners show up with the right terms and the capital with which we could pull forward and accelerate a lot of what we've been planning to do using our organic cash flow, it's really hard to pass that opportunity up. And so there's a quick process that happened when you know Catherine Boyle from General Catalyst, who joined our board, comes from the world of journalism, has a mission-driven DNA around uncovering truths, especially contrarian truths, which spoke a lot to us because we think the contrarian truth for us is like consumers want active management. Despite what you see about active, passive flows, active management underperforming, none of that matters. All that matters is what listening to clients and building what they want. And she really saw that contrarian truth and was inspired to, to help us build this company along with a handful of other partners. So um, yeah, I think that's generally the right ethos to raising money. Best advice I would give anyone is just, it's not a milestone to sell. It, it's something to celebrate because you have a great partner on board, hopefully, but it's not a milestone in its own right. If anything, it's an obligation. You now have, you've given up percentage of your, of your baby, so to speak, and each investor employee has has taken some dilution and it's up to you to now go make it accretive. And so, but I, yeah, we're just excited to have them on board and help us do it. That's a super level-headed way to think about it. And we're obviously thrilled to hear it went so smoothly for you. But I do agree that folks need to remember venture money is an accelerant that can come at a price. But it sounds like for you, in this case, it was the complete right price, which is great. I actually want to jump back, though, to what you were saying before about expanding the team so slowly. It's funny that you talk about hiring one person a year for the early years, because I think anyone who follows Titan on social media accounts now would think that it looks like you've been hiring like crazy. (laughs) So maybe talk about what's changed as you've grown the company in terms of what you look for in hires or just how you've thought about which functions to build out and when. For us, it's it's truly been a function of we were extremely lean and really only grew organically, didn't spend money on marketing to grow pre our Series A. So, you know, when we have $12.5 million um, in our coffers, that obviously gives, frees us a lot of flexibility to be able to recruit amazing people. Yeah, we've been, we've been incredibly pleased with the quality of talent that is just coming to apply at Titan. I think most of, our, most of our hires so far have come either, they're Titan clients. <laughs> that that want to work here and uh, they're the perfect people to bring on board because they, they know the product, they get it, or referrals from existing folks that work at Titan. So yeah, we've run from, from eight people to, to 16 in just the last couple of months, uh, hiring across every function. The reason we're hiring so quickly is because we have a ton of stuff product velocity-wise that we want to build and we need A-plus people to help us do it. Yeah. I mean, t- in terms of advice, I mean, if it's, I think Brian Chesky from Airbnb said, you know, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. I generally subscribe to that as well. Life's too short to part. And it really is a marriage when you, when you hire someone and all it takes is like one bad apple to, to spoil the lot. We take that to heart. You know, we have 16 people today. We've been around for over three years. We haven't had, lost one person, 100% employee retention. And um, I think it's a testament to every single person is very thoroughly vetted and really has to buy into the mission. If we're right on that, 
the size of the prize and asset management is so large, it should be a no-brainer <laughs> regarding like the economic outcomes if we succeed. The mission-driven DNA is what it took to get here. Three big memorable market corrections we've had to deal with. You know, the broker dealer getting acquired out from under us, having to heart surgery on our back end, like so many things that you know the media doesn't necessarily cover about us that we had to power through. And unless you have, have mission-driven people who can uh, who are willing to look past those kind of obstacles, it's really hard to survive. We hear so much about mission alignment creating the staying power these days. So totally resonates. I'm curious if you have any other advice for first-time founders, given you just referenced some of the less glorious parts that might not get as much airtime. What else should founders keep in mind while grinding in the early days? I mean, the most important thing, probably so much so that if you get this right, everything else will take care of itself, is, I mean, just building something people want, finding product market fit. It is so incredibly hard incredibly hard. And it's, you know, the, the best KPI to measure that is just organic word of mouth, zero dollars in marketing spend attributed to it. Just like people loving the product so much, they're willing to talk about it incessantly and pay you for that product. Importantly, we could go on for hours about like free consumer social apps. It's really hard to drive sustainable business value necessarily. You can create something that goes viral, like a, a meme account or something, right? Plenty of those on Twitter, but having, building something that people will share and talk about for free yet pay you for is the ultimate sign that you're onto something. And so at the early days, before you raise a bunch of venture capital and hire a bunch of people, if you can just do surveys, build a light prototype. I mean, it's so easy nowadays with all these low code or no code solutions. You don't even need to be a technical founder. My co-founder and I, uh, Joe, I'm semi-technical. Joe's not technical at all. And you know, we basically built a prototype of Titan without, before finding our, our co-founder and you know, amazing CTO, Max. So I would just encourage people like, quote unquote, first principles, even though I hate saying that, figure out if you're building something people want. So make sure it's a problem that you understand well, that you think you can be the best in the world at understanding and solving. Make sure the solution is a, can be a viable business and then just like test it in the scrappiest way possible before you take a dollar of even family and friends money. Um, because again, it creates all sorts of weird incentives and obligations that can steer you down the wrong path. And, and then once you have that organic growth, then you pour fuel on the fire, right? Then you raise money, then you hire to just do more of the same. So focusing on product market fit is the most important thing for any first-time founder. That certainly seems to echo Titan's approach, right? I think you've spent very little on paid marketing, instead relying heavily on organic growth and referrals. So any insights on the strategy build out there and how confident were you that that would be enough? Yeah, organic word of mouth is, is tough, right? It's, un, it's hard to track. It's hard to figure out what the conversations consist of. Like, why are people trying the product? You know, for us, it was an existential question of, is it returns? Is it the experience? Is it just because it, it's a really seamless, easy to use product that solves a, a functional goal that they can otherwise solve elsewhere? So for us, it was just getting on the phone with a lot of clients and asking those questions and trying to kind of build that mosaic of why people are talking about it and then just lean in and do more of those things. So produce for us, it was content. Going back to, you know, our content factor that I mentioned earlier. You know, 60% of our clients check the, the app weekly. And when they do, we track these things called quality engagements, which is like how often do clients interact with the video or a piece of, of research or a survey that we do with, with like hedge funds or in tracking that data helps us figure out, okay, clients that have these quality engagements significantly tend to refer within their first week, or they tend to make the second deposit in the second week. And so again, by owning the whole client relationship, we can track all that data and it just makes the product better, faster. 
and we can personalize it by client. So for us, content is how we drove the machine, is how we're driving the machine. It's natural, it's organic, the market creates it, and we just refine it and harness it. And then referrals is the other big one. I mean, I think every successful company has some sort of ambassador or referral program these days. It's kind of table stakes. Generally, they're financially incentivized somehow, whether it's they'll give you X months free or um, they'll put you know a certain number of dollars in your account to start to kind of grease the wheels. For us, it was just paying it forward. So you know, we'll waive fees for people that come in and, and refer people. And yet we have, we have many clients that pay discounted or zero fees, and we're happy to pay it forward because you know, the hardest thing to acquire in our industry is clients because there's so many investing apps and choices, really, really expensive. I mean, if you go try to acquire one of our clients on Facebook, you're going to be paying well into the hundreds of dollars. And for our competitors, they're making tens of dollars a year. So that math doesn't really work. So you know, focusing on what about the product is worth talking about in a word of mouth sense. And then what about your product? Can you make a referral incentive that just makes sense? And so, yeah, those two pieces for us are you know, well over 80% of our growth these days. Such interesting food for thought. Thanks for sharing some of the thought process there. Well, Clay, we've covered a ton of ground between potential new products underway, new hires, the active-passive debate, and so much more. But before we start wrapping up, I'd love to hear about just what gets you most excited when you think about the next year or so in Titan's story. It's definitely got to be the, the types of products that we're going to bring on the platform and democratize. I mean, public equities and making things accessible and, and, and outsourced to a money manager in your pocket is great. The home run or grand slam, I should say, is taking things that you didn't even dream were possible and having someone manage your money and making those accessible. I mean, as much as like venture capital gets talked about, like, can you imagine having 100,000 investors in Airbnbs like Series C round? It seems impossible, right? We're betting that it's not. And so those sorts of problems, like almost too good to be true impossible, legal, regulatory complexity, there's liquidity, like how do you get the money in? How do you manage that many clients on a cap table? Those are all the sorts of problems that we love that a lot of people skid over because they just assume from the get-go that they're, it's in the too hard pile. So a lot of what we've done to date is, is testing and leaning in and, and just building more of what our clients are asking for, for that first hypothesis that we're now confident we're onto something special around active money management at scale for consumers. Now, the types of things that, they're gonna, that are going to be made available are going to be really special. So crypto is really interesting, but yeah, the private asset classes and you know, what, what I would consider like omnibus custody, if you're familiar with that, which is like, think about how many different investing apps you need. You have one for your art investing. You have one for your wine investing. You may ask yourself one day, like, why do I have 15 investing apps? One for each different thing. Why can't I just have like one stop shop to rule them all? That's also a big problem that we're thinking through. So those are the most exciting things I'm, I'm thinking through. Clearly a great teaser of what's potentially to come from Titan. And we'll be sure to link in our show notes that you can download Titan's mobile app at titanvest.com to get invested in just minutes. But let's hit a rapid fire round if, if you're ready for that. What do you yeah, say? Let's do it. All right. Awesome. So first things that come to mind, pretty short answers. Starting off with, what stock gives you heartburn just thinking about it? <laughs> I'm going to mention one that I'm not familiar with because I don't even know like the, the, uh, the antacid to take. It's, it's probably one like Tesla. And the reason it gives me heartburn is because it's always been in the too hard pile for me. But like the amount of people that ask me about it, it constantly makes me think that I need to get around to actually doing the work on it. I have nothing against Elon Musk. I love the vision that it's, it's working towards. 
but it's just funny to see the dichotomy of smart people on other side on either sides. The like Jim Chano's kind of short seller types that are betting on its demise, and then the Chamath Palahapatiya, you know, how could you bet against the future? There are a lot easier ways to make money than betting against Elon types. And so many smart people on either sides of the aisle. I, I feel like I should have an opinion about the conversation. I just don't. So it's one of those things that's like, I know I should figure out the antidote and take the medicine. I just don't know which medicine to take. That's probably the one that's that's uh, keeping me up at night. I can confidently say you're not the only one on that. On to the next. You actually mentioned a few public markets investors in that response, but who is the one investor you admire the most and why? I won't answer with one of like the, the legends because those are obvious and cliche. I love what the folks at Altimeter have done. If you're familiar with Brad Gershner, I admire people who are, who are flexible and adaptable. I think that is the most, and what I would call anti-fragile. People that skate to where the puck is going and are constantly willing to, to relearn, unlearn ways of doing things to stay alive. The reason I give Brad Gerster is just for over the last 20 years, the network that he's built with entrepreneurs in the early stages, then investing them in when they go public and then seeking their networks for potential private investments and then launching a crossover fund and just the ability to be multi-stage, private and public, and just deliver such an incredible track record over decades. And also love looking at the quality of people that someone attracts as a barometer of their own talent. And if you just look at the quality of talent that have left, Altimeter to start their own funds. It's just, it's like second to none. So <laughs> you're probably familiar with them because they tend to be leading most rounds because entrepreneurs now realize how good they are. So it's, it's them, D1 and Tiger and <laughs> DST and Dragoneer are like the top five and pretty much every large growth round. So I, I really admire what they've done. Okay. We've now named a great slew of folks for us to think about as future podcast guests. So thank you for help in sourcing. In case you're listening, Brad, we would love to have you, but I'll come back to that in a minute. For you, Clay, what's the last fintech app you downloaded? I feel pretty good about my little core, you know, my Titan and my, you know, my kind of core uh, uh, banking and, and checking. I love what um, what David at Common Stock is doing. If you're familiar with Common Stock, yeah, of course, they spoke on our podcast not too long ago. Yeah, David's fans. great. I love that there's so many different solutions happening in different parts of like the consumer investing stack. More broadly, my philosophy on money is like, there's not going to be, there may not necessarily be one app to rule them all. Like I mentioned omnibus custody a few minutes ago. I think it's a very myopic way of viewing the world to say like everything's going to consolidate to one place. And so I'm big fans of folks that are going after like what seem to be niches, but could be like mass scale solutions to a very specific type of problem. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, for example, I personally, even though I have a vast majority of my money and, and attention is in Titan, there are individual stocks that I like to keep an eye on. And like, I want to be part of that conversation. So I think building a platform to be able to follow other people and participate in those conversations in a more open way, you know, Titan is, is a close-end platform deliberately for now, is really, is really impressive. So I love what he's doing with that, that platform. Great answers. And last but not least, who would you like to see us interview next for the Wharton FinTech podcast and dream big, sky's the limit, but who's a voice that you think needs some more, some more exposure? So there's two, actually. One of them was a, is an altimeter-backed company called Modern Treasury. I don't know if you're familiar with Modern Treasury. Uh, Dimitri at Modern Treasury, you should have him on. They were YC batchmates with us, and we're, we're actually very close. Uh, so Modern Treasury and Titan go way back. They are fantastic. He's building a, an absolute behemoth of a company. So you have to have him on. 
um, to chat about B2B payments in like the, the archaic world of ACH transfers. For um, sure. And then I would also recommend having my friend Hunter Horsley on from Bitwise. Hunter's building Vanguard for crypto and incredibly thoughtful and successful in how they've approached it, going after institutional investors, trying to be their crypto manager, kind of on demand. Um, so they just crossed a billion dollars of asset under management. Um, they launched one of the first, I think the first crypto index fund ever. So definitely have him on to, uh, to talk, chat about all things crypto. All right. Well, guys, if you hear this episode, uh, the invitation's open. We'll reach out over email. Thanks, Clay, for the ideas. I think that's a perfect place to end on. Thank you so much again for your time, for your insights, and for sharing more of Titan's story with us. I can't wait to share this conversation with our listeners. And we wish you all the success in Titan's future. Thanks so much, Clay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the lively conversation. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or engaging with us on social media. It means a lot and meaningfully helps spread the word to more listeners. If you're looking for more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. Here you will find interviews, articles, videos, and more content than you could ever ask for, analyzing and amplifying innumerable vantage points on the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Raphael Austria. Signing off, I'm your host, Ali McCluskey. Be well.